We swim in a virtual stew of data, from voting data to health data to crime data. There's likely a number somewhere that, with a little crunching, can get you a better understanding of your community. The task of crunching those numbers and making them intelligible for a broad audience is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Simon Rogers. Rogers is a data journalist who authored the book, Facts Are Sacred, which, quote, reveals how data has changed our world and what it tells us, end quote. He's currently a data editor at Google, and before joining that new media giant, Rogers served as a data editor at Twitter and worked at The Guardian, where he created the newspaper's data blog. Sam, Simon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How did data become such a big part of your life? Uh, well, if you'd seen me when I was like 10, um, you would not have thought this was how it was going to work out. <laughs> like, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, right? That was not a challenge for me. Like, soon as I stopped wanting to be a fighter pilot, I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> but maths was not my strong point. And, and like, there's, there's this example I use when, you know, when I'm doing my talks, but basically... Yeah, I have a school report, actually, from a uh, math school report, which says, tries hard but has little natural ability. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, it, was not, it was not really what I imagined happening. But um, now, when I, when I think about, you know, how I used to think about numbers and, and so on, it seems it makes a lot more sense to me. And I guess, um, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a house where I was always kind of asking questions. I wanted to know why things happened a lot. Um, you know, I, I loved, like, Richard Scarry books when I was a kid, yeah. you know? And and if you look at the cutaway drawings to Richard Scarry books, they are incredible to me now. And I even even now, still, when I look at them with my son, mm-hmm. uh, they are amazingly accurate um, visualizations just drawn in a very accessible, friendly way. And I think, you know, that kind of representing information in an accessible way is something that anybody who works with data should should strive for. So I guess um, I guess I kind of grew up wondering, you know, why things were the way they were, but not seeing maths or numbers as a way to do that. And then, but you know, like fate has a way of of intervening, <laughs> doesn't it? So for me, I had um, I joined the Guardian to to edit the the new news website. It was just when we launched it um, at the end of the nineties. And I, I managed to get a transfer onto the newspaper, which was like the center of gravity then. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, was, it was so, shows how old I am. <laughs> and um, But my first day was September the 10th, 2001. Oh. So oh. day two, 12, 15-odd <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, time, everybody was out at lunch. Um, and suddenly, you know, the, the, the terrible events to that day September 11th kind of unfurled and basically they needed somebody to work with the graphics team and nobody else cared or, or wanted to. And I, I thought, well, you know, it's always good to take an opportunity that everybody else needs doing, but nobody else knows how to do. So I kind of started working with the graphics team a lot and I started just collecting data, collecting data, partly 
just because I'm a bit lazy. And, <laughs> you know, the first time you look for GDP figures, you don't understand why any of these numbers are, right. why there are five different measures of GDP. It's ridiculous. And then you start, then you get the right set or carbon emissions or whatever it is, and you have it. So we start collecting all these data sets. And um, I, after a while, I just had loads of data. And I thought, well, what if we just published on a blog, just published data sets in a kind of formatted, useful way? So non PDFs, you know, just in a way that people could access and use. So that's what we started doing. And that's how I really got into this, this, this strange field, I guess, is just by luck, by luck and, and just, you know, doing stuff in the office that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> Well, I have to tell you that that anybody that can put put on a, a data set that's every Doctor Who villain since 1963 is all right in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know when I left, I really I, I just said to the team, I left, whatever you do, keep updating that. <laughs> that, that has to be current. What I mean, this are is, you talking they're... about why? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's just brilliant. So so you uh, you said that you quickly started working with some of you were one of the first people to be enlisted to work with some of the designers. There. What was the first story that you worked on? So, um, what actually the first one that I remember, and I actually came across this when we moved to the US because I was sorting out stuff. And um, the Guardian had this thing at the time where you could have a big visualization or a big picture across the spread, and it would be the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and there is still, you know, I'm kind of old fashioned about this, there is still something about seeing data on paper. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, it's something amazingly powerful about the design of that. Anyway, we, um, I was lucky enough to work with um, the Guardian's head of graphic designers called Michael Robinson, and who's just a brilliant designer. And we had to do, as a head of the invasion of Iraq, and we'd done a lot of small things around Afghanistan and what was going on there, and and we had to do a big thing that would hold the spread. Um, and that's and it was really just about pulling together the right data and realizing there is a whole skill set which I think people don't teach enough in journalism school, which is how to work with designers. Mm -hmm. Right, I agree. Right, because what people tend to do, and I've seen people do this, is a journalist will just give the designer a whole sheaf of paper mm -hmm. or whatever it is, a whole tons of data sets, and then there you go, and then say goodbye and. The thing about this job that I got, I guess, was that I was encouraged to be a, a you know, to be an editor working with, with the designers. And my my the thing that I would be editing would be the content, you know, and, and seeing how stuff would fit together. So I I really learned quickly not to do that. You have to edit content when you give it to designers and and talk through, you know, what, what the visual should do and what it's trying to what story it's trying to tell and so on. So mm -hmm. I I still and I teach at the moment. I teach um data journalism at, uh, at the Medill School in, in San Francisco. And we have a whole session on how do you work with designers. I mm -hmm. think it's something that everybody who works with data should learn how to do. And I'm stealing that idea from you right now. I teach journalism, so. <laughs> right. so, so Simon, I, you know, John and I got into this 10 years ago when we taught a class together on news and numbers. And I can remember mm -hmm. as the journalist, the journalism professor in the classroom, I was a little intimidated because I was, I had math anxiety, and later I'm going to talk right. to you about overcoming that and what what you what you do with students who are like that. Because a lot of journalism students are very much like that. 
But in, but in terms of design, I remember I, I felt comfortable with John in the very first class because he brought a graphic, a visualization into class. He looked at the students, pointed at the board and said, what's the story here? And I felt really comfortable that John expected that a good data visualization uh, should tell a story and you should see Ooh. it right away. And I saw your I saw your TED talk and you this was the one from six or seven years ago and you had that nice I call it a bubble chart is that what you call that about oh, the where the yeah the one where yeah. all the money is spent in, yeah. in 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 Great Britain. So what is bad design? I mean, when you teach, what when you look at a graph or a chart, what's what do you, what are you telling? Where, how do you get the story out there? How do you, what do you it's what do you really, say I'm, to journalists? You know, I'm not a designer, right? I'm still not a designer, even though I have, I care about visuals, I guess. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think anything that makes you feel stupid, mm -hmm. you know, and that those inaccessible and, you know, I, I still, you know, there are some chart types I just don't really like. I don't really like scatter plots. I'm sorry. You know, there are some, there are some, and sometimes I think... You should see John's face right now. I think you've just broken his heart. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, this is like, you know, like, I know that, you know, I, I have seen them done like New York Times or, or do an incredible job. Of, I don't like them either. I think they're... I like recently, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, a fundamentalist about this. But I think for me, it's a, really about accessibility. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, think, I think there was a phase, wasn't there, like a few years ago when really all the visual had to do to go viral was kind of be pretty. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I think we're past that now because people want to understand what's happening in the world and this crazy time that we're living in. And I think any visual that kind of doesn't speak, doesn't try to speak to everyone, that is really about, you know, are you making this visual because you want to impress your peers mm. or are you making it because you want to express information in a way that people can understand? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm obviously, you know, I, I, I haven't got an example in mind, but I do think that, you know, I sometimes I look at a vision and I think, okay, I've spent 20 minutes trying to understand what the hell this is about. Mm -hmm. yes. And if I'm doing that and I'm used to charts, like, what, and then, yeah. then what's the point? Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, a lot of people talk about storytelling with data. Mm. So can can you know you've, you've storytelling is like the most overused word. I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm a, it's, it seems like it's really getting a lot of a, a lot of play these days. Yeah. So so you you talk about uh, you know a data story. You talk about the data journalists, the pro, the data journalism you once you defined as the process to get the story out there for, of the that's in the numbers. I mean, uh, yeah. do you, you know, help, help us think through kind of the way people are talking about these, these days, whether it's data journalism or storytelling with data or what is a data story? I mean, it's, it's really interesting because a few years ago, you know, to be a data journalist is like a separate career path. And now increasingly, I think we're seeing a better, you know, more widespread sense of the importance of using data in journalism among all kinds of reporters. And it, it means like you don't always have to be, you know, an expert. Mm. You don't have to be a coder or a designer to be able to tell a story with with data. Um, I mean, I, I asked somebody about this. I, I, I did a Twitter thing where I said, hey, Twitter, well, how would you describe data journalism um, more recently? And, and really kind of what came back to me is a lot of it is literally about just telling a story in the best possible way mm -hmm. because you're not limiting yourself to 
doing it just with words. You're saying, you say, what other information can we bring in that's going to enhance this story and make it more understandable, more accessible? And um, I'm really starting to see that in the kinds of work that's out there around people who are, some people who are telling stories in the data in an incredibly kind of human way. Like you look at the work of someone like Mona Chalabi, mm-hmm. who's the mm-hmm. US uh, data editor at The Guardian now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, who's great, who's a great, you know, like, so she, I, I worked with her back when I was there because we, uh, she came to a, to a training and I saw was, I was, I was she come to the office. And she's developed this whole field now of drawing yeah. data mm-hmm. sets in mm-hmm. a way that incre- they're incredibly approachable and understandable. And yet if you talk to her about the way she does it, she's very clear on how it has to be statistically valid and how everything has to be in proportion and so on. So I think I think her work is great. I'm really like um, on the more designery end, people like Nadia Bremer, who does um, visual cinema, and does amazingly kind of amazing work. Just a project with us, which was very complex um, bubble charts, but they were all hand drawn, or they get a feeling of being yeah. hand drawn, and sort of, uh, something like that that, would, that took a, a long time to do, but it was incredibly powerful and and visual and easy to understand. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking data and data journalism with Google data editor Simon Rogers. Simon, I uh, was reading something earlier where uh, that you have from 2012 where you made an argument about data being the new punk. And I was wondering <laughs> if you would talk a little bit about what you were trying to say and whether you still feel like data is the new punk. Uh, so every year now, about like January, I get a whole bunch of data journalism students sending me emails saying, my professor says I have to do this piece about whether data journalism you put. So, <laughs> the, so um, yeah, I, 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 I do still believe it. I'll say why. I think, um, so the argument that I made, and okay, I was using a phrase that I thought would kind of resonate, um, but it came from Joe Cocker famously said, um, <laughs> anyone can do it about his music. And I had seen this diagram that, uh, like, that was, just kind of somebody tweeted it around. It was from a punk fanzine from 1976. And it shows, uh, you know, here's, here's a chord, here's another, here's a third, now form a band. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's something there's something about that, that ability to do this, which I thought was really powerful. So, you know, when, um, when I first started working as a working journalist, the idea that I could make a visualisation that would be interactive. I could show, say there were 3,000 old counties in the States, right? And I could show and make a map that would show the election results from all of those counties. And I could do it. I wouldn't have to ask anybody. I just have to get the data, upload it, make sure that the codes are in there and it would work. That would be unimaginable, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And here we are. Here we are with a kind of incredible amount of free, public, available tools that anybody can use to make incredibly sophisticated visualizations. And you can see examples of this out there that it's, it's inspiring to people, you know, who are, uh, you know, there's the guy who did this um, project and um, it's about weather and wind maps. Mm-hmm. And he'd seen um, the Hint FM kind of US wind maps. He made a global version. Can't remember his name now, of course, but it's an incredibly beautiful visual. But this guy taught himself how to, how to do it. So for me, that felt that in a way was one of the most exciting things about data journalism was how quickly it was expanding with people 
some of whom were great, some of whom were producing work that wasn't great, mm -hmm. but it kind of doesn't matter because it's like getting that stuff out there and getting people excited and enthusiastic about data is really important. And now, um, one of the things I do is I, I work with the Data Journalism Awards, mm. and you're increasingly seeing that entries from all over the world, from places like it's one person in Afghanistan producing really interesting data journalism, using free tools that are out there, mm -hmm. and just having the ability to do that. So, so I guess I'm saying in a really long-winded way, mm -hmm. I do think that this idea anyone could do it is still really valid, and often it's valid partly because in newsrooms, data journalists are often on their own. Yeah, they're often right. like one person. They're working in an environment where people don't really understand what they do and don't really know how to support them properly. And they do it and they work together and they do it and they, they find the best way to tell that story using the incredible kind of array of tools that we have now. So, when, so yeah, so I do when, think it's still a new part. So when you're, when you're teaching, and this goes to the math, math anxiety thing, mm. and, and when you're using the sort of punk metaphor that anybody can do this, there's, yeah. there's some, some students are going to be blocked, right? Is, there a, is yeah. there a technique you use to sort of get them over that hump to show them, okay, anybody so can do this? My, my course is a bit different to other people who teach data journalism, and I'm not saying it's better or worse. To be honest, it's the only one that I can do, mm -hmm. um, which is I do not spend a lot of time teaching individual tools. I know I work with other professors, you know, professors, people who, proper teachers who will spend the whole time teaching like SQL or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I've got like 10 weeks with you. The thing that I can do is give you a sense of what's possible and then and then help you point you in the right direction. So for and one of the things that we would do in every class though is these kind of recurring exercises, one of which is look at the news stories that are in the news that day, go and find some data about them, work out what questions you want to ask, and then find out the answers to those questions. Hmm. And just do that every single class. Mm -hmm. So that they're always thinking, A, how the data is applicable to something that's going on in the world. So it feels like it's real as opposed to this abstract concept. And um, I suppose, secondly, just to show how straightforward it is to find data and then mm -hmm. how easy it is to then visualize or do stuff with it. So, is it, so I, I, I'm really conscious of it. I'm conscious of it because that was me, you know? That's, that sounds like a great class. I, yeah. I have a, a quick follow-up. So from, from a statistical thinking perspective, you know, not, not all data is, is equally good. You know, no, there's there's questions about, you know, representativeness or, you know, how was the data obtained and to what, yeah. what population does it apply? So there's is, those issues of kind of the, with the sample and what population is it is it appropriate yeah. for inferring anything? And another sort of related question is a lot of times with visualizations, it's almost always just, you know, single numeric estimates without any sense of uncertainty. One of the examples I use is there's a guy, a BBC uh, journalist called Michael Blasland. I'm not sure he's still there, but he wrote a piece about um, the uh, norovirus a few years ago. It's about norovirus reporting. And basically, the reporting had uh, was all around how there could be 3 million people with, with winter vomiting sickness, which sounds like a lot of vomit. <laughs> um, it is, I think, in out, theory. He points out that actually the bad, the, this was in, entirely an estimate based on like Thirty cases. Mm. So, and 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 actually, it could just be a thousand cases. It could be five hundred. Could be two. And and that that is all there in the data. It's just hidden in the footnotes. 
And so we actually spend quite a lot of time in my class looking at footnotes and looking at meaning, how meaningful something is. Mm-hmm. But, try, but using, trying to use examples like that, which are, are not like making people feel they're in a kind of crazily in-depth um, maths class. Partly because I want to be able to understand. I want to be able to explain stuff properly. So, and I'll recognize my limitations in this area, I guess I should say. But that kind of diving into the footnotes to try to understand, I, I, you know, I often wonder if, you know, who's reading it other than your class? <laughs> well, I think, I think I feel like things have got a lot better there. Ah, so good, good, good. Because, so, you know, I, I have news on the whole time because even though I'm now in Google, I, I still treat... With my team, like we're very much in the kind of newsy environment, so we always have news on. And I saw some reporting the other day about about polling, talking about the margin of error, and talking about you know things like that. That when somebody is one percentage point ahead of somebody else, it's meaningless, right? Or they're tied, and things like that. I think are um, are important to 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 teach people because there's there's a, they they think there's a certainty. Mm. You know, right now I work with data that's incredibly uncertain. You know, so if you look at the way search data changes minute by minute, it tell it will tell you fourteen contradictory things mm. in that time. And um, and you know, teaching people there is nuance and uncertainty in the world, I think, is really important. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I was interested in is your you made a move from newspapers to social media sites. So you worked for mm. Twitter and Google. What what prompted that decision? It was it was a couple of things. I mean, one on one end, you know, I really wanted to live in San Francisco, <laughs> honestly, and I thought it'd be great for the kids to to experience something else. And those kind of very personal reasons, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity came out. And the second thing was really around just the work, because I I I really realised that I. I, I kind of needed to work on how I how I dealt with big data, bigger data sets. Like, how would you manage this stuff? How could you tell? There are billions of tweets. Say, how could you tell stories with those? Mm-hmm. And that I realised that that would be a challenge for me. And so when it came up, it seemed like a really good opportunity to do that. And I think that was really the move. I I, I was incredibly anxious about it. Mm-hmm. Just honestly, as a, as a personal level, I was taking yeah you know, my my kids away from everything they knew, and and yeah you know, my my wife and everybody had to kind of you know, like readjust to this mm-hmm. this environment, which they they all did way better than I did. <laughs> all amazing, um, and uh, and you know certainly, well, to be honest, there are similarities being in a tech company and being in a newsroom. They're both, they're both, certainly, you know, they're both kind of dysfunctional families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Big personalities and, you know, open plan offices uh, and all those kind of things. So actually, it was less different than I imagined it would be. Mm-hmm. But also, I realized I had to find my way. Mm, yeah. You know, I had to, to cut, I, I had to almost like start again a little bit. And I think there's a bit of that. And then when, um, when the, the opportunity at Google came up, that felt like a better fit for me because it was really around working with news. I work in the news lab, which is the, the team at Google. It's really a kind of bridge, an editorial bridge for journalists and the company, and so which means we do editorial projects, and I get to think about what's next, how things are going to change, how does technology make a difference to 
the way that journalists work. And I get to work with this data set, which is probably the, you know, the, 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 the biggest and most important journalistic data set out there right now, in that it, and the one we understand the least mm -hmm. so at the same time. This very interesting. So, as part of your your work at, at this uh, at Google News initiative, what's what's mm. been the most interesting story that you've covered, or what's the, what's been the kind of the thing that you've discovered that really surprised you the most? So there are there are kind of three things about Google data which I think you know. But one of the things is that people associate Google with data, yes. but nobody really knows what that data is. Right. And there, okay. there are right. kind of three, three things that, that really hit me about the data. And I work with Google Trends data primarily, and my team does. And Google Trends is it's kind of about, it's a, it's, a, it's a random sample of all searches. It's a big sample, you know, a random sample of all searches. And you think how many searches there are a day. There are billions of searches out there. And what we do is, 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 is try and find kind of like the, the signals in there. And it's incredible, you know, it's, and, and, and the first people say, oh, it's just a search. What does a search mean? And I honestly don't know the final answer to that, but it's not nothing. It is a powerful social signal that we're just starting to understand because we've only had access to this data really for the last few years. Mm -hmm. So I, the most obvious thing about data is it's big. You know, there's lots of it. And that, that hugeness kind of takes you beyond the echo chamber of social media I guess into a world where it's, it's kind of ubiquitous, you know, and that that's really powerful. The other thing about data is it's incredibly honest. You know, you're never as honest as you are with your search engine, so it gives you a kind of real, a uh, real view of what people honestly care about in a way that because you, you're not when you're searching for something, you're not presenting yourself. You're you're just naturally inquiring about something you, you're interested in. And the other thing about it is it's immediate. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. when something happens, there's an instant reaction online because people want to know what Earth's going on there. And so they take they take search to do it. So those three things reshaped it. So I, for instance, I wasn't really expecting immediacy. I didn't know that it would be like that. Or or just the, the complete honesty of the way people search. And sometimes you see that reflected in, you know, the way people search around food or life or like searches for irrational fear of trees went up 75% last year. For instance, stuff like that, which is just weird. <laughs> Some stuff weird um, that you see, or or some things you kind of knew, but you didn't know until you see them in search, like um, in um, the, the uh, how to get the searches for how to get sleep are highest around the world in England on Christmas Eve night. <laughs> like that. Or, or uh, you know, when people search for cocktail recipes, which is, you know, uh, uh, the 31st of December, and, and the next day people are all searching for hangover. Oh. <laughs> yeah. this, this is really how people search. So, so those things are really amazing, the interesting. And, yeah. you know, we've done a lot of work around elections. I, I, I joined Google just before the 2016 election. So seeing how people search was really interesting and seeing spikes in searches in places like, you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania for, for Donald Trump ahead of that election in a way that was surprisingly high to me at the time, but now make utter, uh, complete uh, sense. That's interesting. You know, those things, those things are really fascinating to me. And I, I, I you know, even though we, we've kind of delved into it, we've got a good sense of what you can get out of the data now. I, th I feel I do feel we're at like we're still at the very early stage of fully understanding the significance of it.
Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Simon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.